today we're going to begin with a reading from the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, uh, turn to Revelation 5. This is an easy book to find in the Bible, by the way. Just go to the back. Start with the hard part at the back, that is the cover, <laughs> and then work your way forward until you get to chapter 5. And we are seeing in this passage a description of the throne room of God. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne and circled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. What an awesome story. What a beautiful reading. Doesn't that just thrill you? I hope it does. This is a glorious day or time in the realm of God, the throne room of God, where there is worship and there is unbelievable glory and incredible earnestness about what is getting ready to happen as this this scroll with its seven seals is being passed to the only one who is worthy to open it. Now, in our study of the book of Ruth, we've learned some really essential truths about God that are at play in what we just read. 
and it will make Revelation easier to understand. If I were going to if I were going to invite you to study the book of Revelation, the essential thing I would ask you to do before you start is read the book of Ruth. And better yet, listen to a halfway decent series of sermons about the book of Ruth so that you could learn some essential truths like these. For example, you understand now that according to the law in Leviticus, if a man lost everything he had, he had to sell himself into slavery. And he had to make up for his debt with his own life and flesh. And the only thing that could save him from this slavery that would be the result of his indebtedness would be the salvation through a kinsman redeemer. If a near kinsman saved him, that is to say paid off his debt, then that person could restore him back to a right relationship with those to whom he owed money. And therefore, he'd be able to have his house back, his land back, his property, and so forth. This person, this kinsman redeemer, is called a goel, a goel. And this is the person who can redeem what you've lost for you. And so we understand, as we've read through the story of Ruth, that when Adam and Eve lost their right to the land we call Eden, to the place in paradise where they walked with God in the cool of the evening, when they lost their right to that, they were cast out. They were no longer allowed to go back to their property because it wasn't theirs anymore. They'd lost it. They'd made a mistake. They gambled and lost. And now they were out. And we understand that the only thing that can get them back in is redemption by a kinsman redeemer. Someone who is able to pay off the debt, to cancel their debt and restore them to a right relationship with their debtor. And, or to the one that, to whom they are indebted. And so... If you realize by now, we are the descendants of Adam and Eve, and just like Adam and Eve, we're a day late and a dollar short, right? We, we just never quite could possibly have managed to get to the point where we could pay off our own debt. We couldn't work enough years as slaves to cancel the debt we owe to God, which is the sin at its core of disrespecting God, distrusting God. Adam and Eve were able to believe that God's motives were wrong, that God wasn't really good, and that God wasn't entirely truthful with them. And when they started doubting God in that way, when they questioned God's character, they sinned against God. And we've been questioning God's character ever since, haven't we? I can look at this group of people and I can see a hundred different opinions of God. Most of us will have similar ideas, but when it gets down to the nitty-gritty, like how God feels about certain social norms and certain issues in our communities and so forth, there will be a variety of opinions. And which one's right? God. The rest of us are probably wrong somehow or another because we can't redeem ourselves. To redeem ourselves would be to restore ourselves to the kind of relationship that Adam and Eve had with God before the fall. And so we need the help of a kinsman redeemer. And so like in Ruth and Boaz, there is the one who is 
cast out and not part of the community, not welcome in the land, and because of her association with someone who ran out on their debt. Remember, Elimelech, we assume, rather than go into slavery, decided to just skip town, and so he, he basically stiffed the one he owed. We don't know exactly what happened. We don't know why that was, but we understand that Elimelech took his family out of the country rather than stay and work off his debt. And now he's dead, and Ruth and Naomi are in the land again, and they're being accepted because of their roots and relationships there. But Boaz has stepped up, as you heard last week, and stated that he's willing to cancel their debts on their behalf and to assume responsibility for them by marrying Ruth. And we're supposed to see in that story a picture of what Jesus does for us. In that story, we recognize then that we are not citizens of heaven yet, and we can't be until we're redeemed. We can't go home to where we're really from until we've been redeemed by our near kinsmen. And the near kinsman has to have certain qualifications. The near kinsman has to be somebody who is able to pay the price. So if I was your near kinsman and you had a great debt, the first thing that would have to happen is I would have to have enough money in my account to cover your debt and still maintain my own household. So the near kinsman has to be someone who already has enough to cover your debt. In the case of Jesus, it had to be a level of righteousness that no human has ever attained. And so it isn't a physical wealth in his case, but a spiritual wealth. Jesus has the perfect righteousness. And therefore, in God's eyes, he is without sin at the time of redemption. And so he has to be able to pay the price. And he has satisfied that ability by not giving in to the temptations that he experienced, which were in every way like our own. And let's just be clear on this. They are physical temptations to be sure, but at the heart of all physical temptation is a question of God's holiness, a question about who God really is and why should I trust him and why should I obey him. And Jesus never faltered, though he was tempted in every way. The next thing that you have to be in order to be the Goel or the kinsman redeemer is you have to be willing. Now again, I want you to consider that Jesus was about to undertake a suffering that was for him the worst imaginable suffering, which we can't even conceive of. We simplify it for our own sakes and there's nothing wrong with that, but we do simplify it by saying, well, yeah, that would be horrible to die on a cross like that. No question that that is, without a doubt, the most excruciating death one can experience. In fact, that's where the word comes from. Excruciating pain is a reference to the cross or the crucifix, excruciating. Sorry, word thing, can't help it. My daughter's laughing because she gets it. And so... 
We can simplify it by imagining it that way, but what we really need to understand is that for Jesus, this was the worst possible suffering he could imagine. Take for a moment your own worst possible suffering that you could imagine. Go to a dark place for just a second and think about the worst thing that you could possibly ever endure. And then ask if you would be willing to endure it for the sake of another. The Apostle Paul says that it's remarkable when the person lays down his life for someone who is righteous, it's unbelievable that somebody would lay down their lives for the unrighteous. And yet, even while we were sinners, Jesus died for us. That's an understatement. Even while we were sinners, Jesus endured the most horrid thing Jesus could imagine. I don't even know what that is. But I can tell you that if I go into my dark place and imagine those most terrifying things, those most horrible things that I could imagine enduring, I just don't know whether I'd do it for a total stranger. And that's all Paul is saying in his words is pretty remarkable if you do that for a righteous person. In other words, you might do that for your family member or a dear friend, but to do it for a total stranger... And so when we say that the Goel or the kinsman redeemer has to be willing, that's what we're talking about. This is going to cost something. And Jesus is willing, but he was tempted. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was tempted. He asked the Father to take the cup away from him, a cup of sorrows. Well then, he has to be worthy. He has to be the one who is worthy. And that means that once he's been found entirely capable of paying the debt, once he's declared his willingness to pay the debt, then he has to be sort of examined as entirely able to take the, you know, they beat Jesus within an inch of his life, but they wouldn't have had much luck crucifying him if they'd killed him with the whip. And so it was a test of his endurance, you might say. And the final qualification then is he has to go through with it. It doesn't count unless he does the deed, unless he goes through with the commitment. In the case of Ruth and Boaz, the perfect completion of the story, as you will hear next week, is that they will eventually have children together and the legacy of Elimelech will be carried on through the kinsman redeemer. And this legacy would each eventually lead to the lineage of Jesus. And so this is what we've learned from Ruth. And now we see it consummated in its completion in the scene we just read from Revelation 5. Because as God the Father sits on the throne where God only dwells, he is handing the launch codes for the end of the world, I know this sounds funny. I've heard, uh, I've said it to a few people this morning and gotten some different looks, but, but I literally picture that God is handing Jesus the scroll with the seven seals. And when Jesus is popping those seals, it's like turning those keys in the nuclear bunker or something to launch nuclear holocaust. I mean, it's along the same lines, only way, way bigger. This is Jesus beginning the end, the judgment of the world. 
And of course, John is witnessing all of this in real time as he's traveled into the timelessness of God and he sees in front of him this incredible drama and ceremony, this unbelievably huge event. This is the, the ultimate event of all time, really. And, and, and he's overwhelmed by what he's seeing because he already knows as a Jew that they won't be able to find anyone on heaven and earth or anywhere conceivable who is worthy and able and willing and capable of holding that scroll, much less opening its seals. And yet there is one, and it's Jesus. And it's no mistake that he's described as a slain lamb, as a wounded lamb. He's, he's being described as the one who has already paid the debt. He's already suffered and paid the price. And this is why he is the only one who can open the scroll, who can launch God's plan of ultimate redemption for all of creation. Our perfect kinsman redeemer is Jesus Christ. Only he can execute the judgment of God. And only he can save us from that right and just judgment of God. And so for just a second, let me just say, as any good hellfire and brimstone 18th century preacher would say, where but for the grace of God go I? If not for God's deliverance through Jesus, I would endure a judgment that I deserved and a suffering that was due me. But because I have accepted that this one and only kinsman redeemer has taken care of my debt for me, I am free from the judgment that I deserve. I haven't done anything to earn it, but I've been pardoned because of Jesus. And by following his leadership for the remainder of my days on earth, I can be assured of following his leadership in a continuation after my days on earth. And I trust his leadership, I trust his judgment, I trust his wisdom. I believe that he is the one that is worthy to say what is right and what should be and how we should do things and how we should serve and how we should hold fast. And therefore, I have declared my allegiance to Jesus. What about you? Now, in some church settings, we find ourselves with an invitation about now to come forward and kneel at the, at the altar rail and so forth. But what I'm going to ask you to do is something a little more sedate, but equally meaningful. We're going to go to the communion table here in a minute. And if you understand Holy Communion as it's been taught to you over the years, you realize that these are signs. Remember from the Bible study earlier, my friends, we were talking about signs. We were talking about how when you look at certain things, in the Bible that seem like prophecy, they're really the signatures of God. And how do you know something is real and authentic? Well, it's got a certified, trustworthy signature on it, right? And so the signature of God, the sign of God, is in the elements of our Holy Communion. So I think I'll go over here. So we're going to... Uh, we're going to do that now and when you hear the words of consecration and you begin to remember again Jesus's statements about the holy communion 
you begin to realize that what he's saying is, is when you eat this bread, that is to say, when you take upon yourself his flesh and, and recognize that his broken flesh, his sacrifice is what has saved you. And his sacrifice is more than his broken body on the cross. It's him enduring the worst thing he could imagine. Because he loves you that much. And so he asks you to eat a piece of bread and remember that as a sign of your salvation. And he says when you drink from the cup, remember that this blood is a sign that you are saved by God's grace. And so I invite you to the communion table to receive these signs and to do so in a faith that expresses your real belief in the salvation of Jesus Christ. When you hear the person who offers you the bread say the body of Christ, your response can be, amen. I agree, this is the body of Christ given for me so that my sins could be forgiven. And in that way, you're making a profession of faith. And when that person hands you the cup and you drink the grape juice and you hear this is the blood of Christ given for you so that sins could be forgiven, you're making an affirmation of faith that your sins have been forgiven. And so we're not going to have an altar call, but when you come, this can be for you. A, an opportunity to make that profession of faith or to renew that profession of faith simply by receiving the bread and the cup. We do anointing at these combined services, so I'm going to offer you anointing with oil or a balm, actually. And this is a tradition of the church where in the Old Testament, it is a way of marking you as set apart for a special purpose that God has in store for you. In the New Testament, it's given more as a way of... of helping those who are sick and dying. And so if you need to be healed of something physical or emotional, uh, spiritual, you know, whatever, you need healing, then this balm can be a sign of God's desire to heal you and to set apart your life for restoration. So either way you experience the anointing is up to you, but I will apply the oil to your forehead and to the back of your hand because I like to put some on your hand too. And you'll recall that I do that because that way later on today, if you're tempted to forget all of this, you'll smell that on your hand and remember. So that's what we're going to do in a moment. But first, our prayers of consecration. So the grace of Jesus Christ be with you and also with me. And the risen Christ be with us this day as we praise the Lord together. Lord, we do not presume to come to this table trusting in our own goodness, but in your unfailing mercies. Lord, we're not worthy that you should receive us, but we say, give the word, please, and we will be healed through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so hear the good news. Christ died for us while we were sinners, and that is proof of God's love towards us. And so in the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Amen? Amen. Now, lift up your hearts and give thanks to God Almighty. As we pray, God, creator of heaven and earth, you made us in your image to love and to be loved. And whenever we have turned away and our love has failed, your love has remained steadfast. By the suffering, death, and resurrection of your only son, Jesus Christ, you delivered us from sin and death 
and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. On the night Jesus gave himself up for us, he took the bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread, and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup, he gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of your mighty acts, Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us. Now pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make, for them, make them for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at the heavenly banquet through Christ, with Christ, and in Christ. In the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory are yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. Amen.